This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our, our guest today is Roland Mimishevich, CEO of uh, 20 Billion Neurons. Uh, Roland, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. But before we t- talk about uh, uh, the company, I was wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your own personal journey, mm-hmm. how you got involved with AI. Was it as a PhD student for with Jeff Hinton? It was uh, that, but also before. Um, the reason I went to Toronto for uh, for my PhD was because at that time that was sort of the only place in the world where you could do seriously could do neural networks. Mm. And I was intrigued and interested in that um, quite a bit of time before that already. And uh, so I chose Toronto as, as the place to go um, to pursue that further. Um, my interest really started when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, mm. uh, through the books by um, Douglas Hofstetter, who is a, wrote some popular science books, basically, uh, with a uh, with a focus on AI, and um, I stumbled upon one of his books uh, in a bookstore. I remember when I was maybe fifteen or something, and I was I just read the the back side of the book, and I was uh, so intrigued. <laughs> it was like magic, something so special and interesting and weird and cool. What impressed you about it? Uh, well, I guess it's the thing that people uh, that impresses people generally about AI, right? It's um, by pursuing AI, you learn a lot about humans and uh, and about ourselves, and um, we are such weird creatures. <laughs> and uh, and it's kind of weird to see this mirror, like by trying to replicate some of the things that humans that that humans represent, really. Um, it's sort of like putting up a mirror and seeing what humans are and, and why they are the way they are and stuff. And many things are very surprising. And um, I don't know. I think the, that's where this fascination came from. And it's also on a more mundane level. It's an interesting mix uh, between uh, <clears throat> kind of a ma- mathematical approach, right? It's it's very mathematical, specifically neural nets and stuff. Uh, and at the same time, it touches philosophical questions and... Uh, and it can be very artistic, even in some in some in some ways. Right? Uh, so there's a lot of creativity that is unleashed, I think, automatically when you dig into the AI AI topics. So how how, how did the opportunity that became uh, 20 billion neuron, neurons mm-hmm. come about? And what's the oppor- opportunity that right. you were trying to address? Right. So I was interested and pulled to video understanding throughout my career as a as a PhD student and later as a as an assistant professor at University of Montreal. Um, not because of video per se, but because I feel like video and I felt like and still feel like video um, is uh, the best possible window to the world that we can give an AI system in order to learn about how the world works, um, what objects are, how objects behave, what living creatures are, how they behave and why, and so on. Um, something people sometimes call intuitive physics or common sense understanding of, of our world. And um, the company really is an 
opportunity for me to pursue this in a way that makes much more sense simply than the way I have been pursuing and other people are, are pursuing this at, at the university. Um, in the company we have a very large scale data generation operation where we ask human crowd workers to film videos for us uh, so that we can teach networks about how the world works and um, and we have a very large team well like relatively large we have some 20 people now uh, focused on this exact problem and um, uh, it's an organization of 20 people basically just trying to nail this one one question and and getting as good as possible uh, uh, to find solutions to, to this these problems and um, uh, that opportunity, you know, to, to work with such an organization so focused on this one problem um, is the reason why I'm here. So for those who, don't, who are not familiar with uh, uh, AI and, and uh, how AI and video work together, mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit about what the company does and what it means for users and consumers? Yeah, so when humans use language, uh, they often um, refer sort of by analogy um, to, to very simple daily concepts uh, in order to uh, make even the most high-level abstract decisions. And um, an example of this, I mean, you see this day-to-day, -day, right? Like uh, a CEO might say there's a big storm brewing ahead of us or something like that, and, and everybody knows what, what it really means. And um, and if you just look at how people use language and and think even and reason day to day, it's always grounded in some very very basic day to day experiences that we have, manipulating objects or I don't know relating to the weather in that case or, or whatever it is, and um, there is an opportunity to get some of this basic knowledge of um, basic physical phenomena into. AI systems um, and uh, video is the best possible way to get that knowledge into those systems um, because it's a very rich uh, source of information and uh, and it, co it conveys a lot about the world um, that these systems would otherwise not get. Um, so what we teach these systems for example is uh, look if I take this object here and uh, I don't hold on to it, it's going to fall this way. And, and obviously it falls in a very specific direction, and uh, it falls this way, not that way. And uh, if I do this, it's going to start to tear, and, and so on and so forth. And I can do this, that shows that it has a certain material property versus other things that have other material properties and so on. All of this is immediately visible in video, and if you try to make prediction tasks around interactions with objects, uh, if you if you can answer a lot of questions about what's happening in videos, you you must fundamentally understand a lot of those properties, and mm. Um, mm. that's why we are creating data that shows all kinds of things that can happen in the world, mm. and then ask uh, neural networks to make predictions, like for example, to describe in words what they see, mm. um, and if they get good at it, it must mean that they somehow absorb some of this information in there, otherwise they couldn't possibly get good at answering those questions. Um, and 
yeah, I, I hope. Uh, yeah, no, I, I understand. Uh, it, I think it would be helpful to understand what you are explaining in the context of some examples from industries like, say, healthcare uh, or. Um, yeah, why don't we start with healthcare? Mm -hmm. Healthcare is uh, it's an immense opportunity for video understanding um, applications. Um, it is a difficult opportunity, though, because um, healthcare is uh, naturally very regulated and um, and difficult to, to penetrate as a market. And um, we've been dabbling with some healthcare use cases, but uh, you receive a lot of headwind, as a, especially as a tiny company. Could you give an example and, of a use case? Oh, yeah, there's endless use cases. Uh, we have, for example, started to work with a hospital uh, in Toronto on um, using, uh, say, gesture control so that nurses uh, who work with a patient do not have to um, uh, stop working with the patient to turn off an alarm, take off their gloves, push the button, put on new gloves, and then continue working working with the patient or something like that. Right? T touchless interaction as mm. a way to make... Uh, make the workflow much, much easier for nurses. Another one is uh, in the same vein. Uh, in, in many situations, it's necessary to log um, what you're doing uh, when you're like dealing with a patient and so on. And uh, it's a lot of uh, work that is conceived of as annoying and, uh, and uh, not very pleasant. And sort of a, it's a sort of conceived of as a waste of time, right? Like you really want to work with the patient, you don't want to spend these mm. 15, 20 minutes afterwards writing down exactly yeah. what you did. It's, it's very easy for a camera that is watching you uh, to create a, a document pre-filled mm. with what you actually did, the sequence of things you did, right. and then for you right. to just look over it, maybe fix some issues, like yeah. just read over it, fix a few things, and then approve and say, okay, this is the log file. Um, so these are just two, two possible use cases. There's many, many more. Uh, specifically around allergy care, for example, um, uh, seeing that somebody fell, um, or even just providing companionship, like uh, having um, artificial, but nevertheless creature uh, around you to um, uh, keep a conversation, keep you company, uh, and just be there uh, to combat loneliness and isolation, which is wow. strange enough, still a very very big problem yeah. Um, yeah. in in uh, like for, for the for elderly people and uh, it's solvable. Yeah. Now the irony is in in healthcare where it's the most impactful and um, and good for society uh, where this, te this technology can really really make a big difference. It's the hardest to commercialize mm -hmm. because it's such a difficult uh, conservative long term. Uh, market that that f for a small company like like ours is hard to uh, to uh, work in. So why don't we take another industry that is less regulated than healthcare, say retail, mm -hmm. and and what might be mm -hmm. some of the applications of video understanding in that field? Yeah, there's um, there's many of them. Um, the ones that I'm most interested in and the ones that we are pursuing as a company is. Uh, uh, it's also around the uh, the idea of a companion, where um, there's an uh, say, think of it as an avatar or some like think of it as a robot maybe, uh, there in order to welcome you to the store to answer you questions around uh, uh, 
items that you might be looking for, or prices, or things like that. Or uh, simpler than that, uh, to make you smile when you go into a certain store and uh, uh, have fun, you know, interacting with an artificial creature that can actually look at you and uh, and engage with you in some way in order to drive engagement and satisfaction and uh, increase food traffic, for example, for, for a particular store. Um, this what is something we by, get... What do you mean by look at you? Mm-hmm. It has a very specific yeah, meaning so one in thing, AI. Yeah, right? yeah so uh, one of the, the um, big changes that we see right now, thanks to the technology that we are building, um, generating data for a system to understand video, is that we can endow these artificial creatures robots or avatars on a screen to really look back at you and understand what they're looking at. Mm. So uh, unlike a smart smart home speaker where you can push a button or something and say, hey, how's the weather tomorrow? Mm. Um, They see that you're approaching. They can basically wave at you uh, and (laughs) tell tell you, come over here, let me show you something. Mm. Um, And uh, they have a gaze direction, just like we have, right? They, they, they look in a certain direction in order to focus on certain parts of the world and they can relay that back to you by just uh, having their eyes point in a certain direction and they can convey to you that they're looking at you right now, they can understand that you are looking at them and you can just have a much more natural engagement uh, with these this artificial intelligence uh, creatures than, than you could with, say, a screen that yeah. is there to browse through a directory or something like that. It sounds the technology sounds absolutely fascinating. You you talked a little while ago about some of the the challenges of commercializing it, and so I was wondering what business model or models uh, uh, are you, uh, are you pursuing mm-hmm. to to uh, make this a viable business? Yeah. So we license uh, the technology. We license these neural networks that enable, say, a robot in a store to uh, to look at you and understand what's going on. We also license data because we generate an incredible amount of data in the process and it's valuable source of information uh, for some companies to train their own systems. And uh, in some cases we, um, we go through partnerships where uh, we, we do, say, pilot projects where we try to bring a new technology onto a device or in a ca- into a car, for example. We didn't talk about automotive. Yeah. Industry. It seems like and the autonomous vehicles seem like a very logical... Interestingly, use. we are not getting into autonomous driving, though. Uh, what Why not? Uh, it's a very crowded space. I it's see. a strategic uh, commercially uh, commercialization sort of decision. It's I a very see. crowded space where we can provide a little bit of value, where we can provide a lot of value in the automotive space is um, by helping these cars become a better assistant and, uh, for example, helping you inside the car to uh, to use your hand gestures in order to control uh, um, part of I the see. car and uh, understanding, for example, what passengers are doing mm-hmm. um, and these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is specific to us. We like to look at the interior mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. rooms and cars. Um, mm-hmm. The average American spends some 93% of the day <laughs> in interior <True>. anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's sort of a focus that's not very limiting. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's the focus that we have. What sort of milestones are you looking? I know you've raised some venture capital. Mm-hmm. So, what sort of milestones are you looking at over the next eighteen to twenty-four months? 
Um, it's um, basically scaling up the, the licensing opportunities that we have. Um, we, we have some very ambitious projects around these, uh, these creatures that can, that can uh, interact with you. Um, so there are some technical milestones where we want to put uh, up new technology um, that enables them to do things they haven't been able to do so far, which is, for example, walk you through um, uh, a skill, like teaching you a new skill, like be it a cooking recipe or, or some uh, uh, dance moves or something. <laughs> um, and then on the commercial side, increasing the, the, the number of uh, subscribers and uh, increasing revenue. How do you measure your success? Um, along both of these lines, right? Um, on the on the technical side, uh, did the technology that we've been envisioning work? And there's technical, like there's numbers you can attach to that. Uh, what is the accuracy in, in certain situations and stuff like that? And then um, commercially, uh, like the number of deals that we are able to close and, and, and what their volume and these kind of things. Uh, who are your main competitors and how do you position yourselves uh, against those competitors? Um, there is a bunch of companies that are somewhat similar, um, but there is uh, currently there is no company that is really so laser sharp focused on, on this particular problem. Mm. Uh, it's not vision, but it's video, it's live vision, mm. and uh, specifically live vision in order to, to build... Uh, uh, companions that that can look at you and understand what they're looking at. Um, that's the good news. Uh, we're not worried right now that uh, that the market is too flooded with this. Um, there's also a very big shortage in talent, which is sort of the field where competition really plays out. And on that front, there is uh, the usual companies: uh, Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, um, who are all competing for talent and um, once in a while, you see offerings specifically by cloud players that uh, that t touch upon some of the capabilities that we provide, and so there's a little bit of kind of overlap there. But all in all, c currently we are in the comfortable situation that we are so uh, specific in what we what we can provide that there isn't uh, there isn't too much competition. What are the principal risks that you see for the company and what are you doing to mitigate those? Uh, risk is always present on all, uh, on all fronts. Um, there's technical risk. Uh, we have very, very ambitious goals and uh, there's the risk that it takes longer to actually pursue these, mm -hmm. uh, these, these ambitions and, uh, and things developing slower than you would hope for. Um, there's market risk. Um, for example, we realized that it is very early days and uh, the ecosystem uh, is sort of finding its way and it's reconfiguring itself in order to serve a lot of the technological solutions that we, that we provide for. For example, the hardware space isn't really there. Cameras don't really have the compute power behind them to, to solve many of those tasks. And uh, there is clearly a timing risk that... Um, some of those use cases are just too early uh, because uh, you know the world wasn't ready for it on, on many fronts. Um, so those, I think, are the are the main uh, uh, main things to mention here. Okay. Uh, in your journey so far, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge you have faced? Uh, how did you deal with it, and what did you learn from it? 
um, growing from four people to six people to ten people to twelve people every time it's a new challenge yes. and every time it's a different you are in a different world uh, yes. kind of and require different processes different different cultural setups to to um, keep everybody productive and happy and the organization healthy as such um, I was a professor at the university before, and uh, it's a very different world, right? Yes. It's uh, very individual-based, and, uh, and as I pointed out in the beginning, one of the reasons is that I really believe a 20-person team focused on this one problem can make unbelievable progress in this direction. But this group of people has to be a functioning conglomerate of interest yeah. and, and so on, and that is something I... Uh, I didn't expect uh, I, this, these challenges struck me. Right, it was it was interesting to see, and I grew through that. Uh, right now, we are in a very good place where where this setup works very well. Was it challenging uh, to go from being a professor to an entrepreneur? Oh yeah, As, I would say specifically because of that reason uh, that I just mentioned. I think that is one of the big <laughs> big ones. Um, but you grow through that, right? Yeah. It's uh, you learn. A lot, and uh, you learn about how humans behave and are, how humans are, and 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 how groups function together and stuff. And it's it's a fascinating topic topic all in itself. Yeah, right. Uh, so we, we talked about your 18 to 21, 24 month milestones, but okay. long term, what's your dream for the future? Imagine a world in which. Uh, and an artificial intelligence uh, can can look at you and relate to you and talk to you uh, in in fundamentally no different way than than another person would. Um, this is not a goal that is attainable. I think um, there is uh, stuff that is related to our bodies, pain, sadness, and these things, um, which. Our AI companions are never really going to under, really understand and, and relate to, but um, asymptotically we can try to approach this, and uh, and uh, one day sit in front of our robotic friend and have a deep philosophical conversation about the economic situation or uh, whatever it is. Um, this I could see one day happening, um, like reasoning and thinking, uh, coming coming up as a as a byproduct of you know pushing uh, towards these goals that, that that we put up or put up in, uh, for ourselves day to day in our in our commercial engagements. Reasoning and thinking, yes, and I think there are some movies that also talk about this. Mm -hmm. But right. do you think computers and through AI? Uh, will ever be capable of feeling emotion? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, not obviously, uh, not in obvious ways. But maybe there is ways to instill some of that somehow. But uh, they might mimic emotion, but they can't feel emotion, right? Well, I think. I think this goes back at the question whether whether a, a system can ever be conscious or not. Yeah. yeah but right. I'm not sure. I'm. Uh, do you know that I'm conscious? Right. It's uh, 
you can sort of assume it, right? <laughs> but you can't really prove it or something. And uh, I'm not sure if you're going to... It's it's very... I mean, it's, this is really out there and crazy, right? But uh, if you ever sit in front of a device, uh, maybe embodied in some way, that conveys to you that it has emotions, I'm not sure you will really be able to dis to no. say, well, it looks like, but I think this is a robot, so it probably doesn't have emotions or something. I, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a fundamental barrier. You just mm -hmm. you can't feel what another person is feeling in any moment. You can sort of have some kind of empathy or something, right? You can sort of relate to it, but you, you can't prove it, right? You don't know that I, I'm conscious. And uh, I think that barrier is true in the same way towards towards devices and um, and so that, I don't think it makes any difference in the end I think people are just going to ascribe some state of mind to the machine and and just roll with it and, and maybe even feel bad if you if you do something to the device that makes it feel hurt or something <laughs> but this is out there and uh, Roland it's so fascinating I could go on talking for hours about this but Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.